Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at kingstreetchurch.com. Turn to James chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. James chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. I'm actually going to read the first four verses of James chapter 4 so we see everything in context as we make our way through this chapter. So here's James 4, starting in verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friends, suppose I gave you a task to go and observe from a bird's eye view the course of human history. And your job was to find a single day in which there were no wars and no battles anywhere on the planet. And if by chance you happened to find a single one, would that day be filled with no murder as well? Or how about no assault and no rape or no fighting and no theft? You see, when we look at human history, one of the most difficult things for us to discover and define and to pinpoint is peace. It's nearly impossible for us to find a time in which there's just peace. And sure, there might be peace between countries here or there. But there's always a fight. There's always factions There's always bickering and complaining. There's always threatening and hating and insulting. It's what you'll find most. The attempts at utopia, building a utopian society, those attempts have been numerous and endless, but the success of actually building one has always been null and void time and time again. But we often hear this common sentiment, right, when someone stands up and accepts or receives a reward, They stand before a crowd of people and then they say these famous words that they wish for world peace. And it begs the question, why don't we have it? Why don't we have peace in our world and in our cities and in our churches and in our living rooms? The answer, because of our hearts. Because of us. The source of all the fighting is the pleasures that wage war within ourselves. This is what God's word teaches us in James chapter four, verse one. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? So at the root of all of our fighting and warring and quarreling is our hearts. Our hearts are this cesspool of pleasures that grow out of control and then spiral into all kinds of destruction. And therefore, we hurt others to get what we want. We step over people to get what we want to obtain. And if we're being honest, this is not just a faraway human history problem. This is a problem that we're able to track in the history of our own personal lives. 
from the very moment that you grew up screaming at your parents as a little toddler to grabbing things out of the hands of your siblings and children on the playground with anger and bitterness to having cliques at school and groups of children that you spoke kindly of and then these groups over here that you spoke poorly about. All the way to strife inside of your workplace and divisions even in the church body. All the way from there to disharmony and chaos under your own roof. The issue is that we have things that we lust after, things that we desire, and so we fight and we argue and we bicker and we complain and we do even worse to one another in order to get them. Well, God's word today shows us that there's another way to live. As verse 6 says, but he gives a greater grace. We get into trouble and we cause unbearable pain because when we want things, what we end up doing is relying on ourselves to get them. And so we steal and we cheat and we fight our way to the top. We choose to live for our own pleasures no matter what kind of pain it might cause in the life of another person. We're motivated by lustful desires and then we trust in ourselves in order to bring about that satisfaction. But we see today that there's another way to live. In our passage... God graciously extends himself to us as a father who answers our prayers. We'll learn today that if we simply ask rightly from God, we will have. And so the text is a call to turn away from self, to stop trusting in self to provide pleasure, and to trust in God instead, to trust in the only one who can truly give satisfaction if we simply ask rightly from God, we will have. There are two things for us to see this morning as we focus on verses two and three. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the first one, admittedly. We'll conclude with the second one. But here's the two things that we're going to spend our time on this morning in verses two or three. First, we're going to take a look at the way of no prayer. And then we're going to look at the way of true prayer. So first, we have a very important matter before us. And it's the way of no prayer. And this is crucial business because it's often the way that we're tempted to operate in our lives. And of course, this is the way of selfish desire and self-interest and self-trust. And it's not the way of true prayer in God and relying on him and trusting in him. And so I want to point out to you the first thing about the way of no prayer. And that's this. It never satisfies. It doesn't achieve what it sets out to do. It leaves us empty. The way of self-trusting and self-seeking and the way of no prayer never satisfies. Just look at verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Notice the words. You do not have. You cannot obtain. You do not have. And so do you see that the way of no prayer is completely unsuccessful in giving you the satisfaction you want? 
There's this lust and this envy going on in verse 2. We have hearts that seek to be satisfied and longings for pleasure to no end. But pay very close attention to what God's word says. You lust and do not have. And the second time it's even more plain. You are envious and cannot obtain. So then what do you do? When you're lusting and your envying is met with not having and not obtaining, what do you do? You fight and you quarrel and you commit murder to achieve the thing that you want. And then at the end of verse 2, our predicament is the same. You still don't have. You do not have because you do not ask. Meaning you can't get the longings of your heart through envious actions that seek to take things for yourself. Friends, this is all to show us that the way of lust and the way of envy never works. Desiring something and then fighting others or using others to get what it is that you desire leaves you empty-handed every single time. Now, you might gain a position. You might gain a possession. But your heart will continually lack peace. You're envious and cannot obtain. And so then you seek to provide it for yourself and it never satisfies. I'm sure you know this very well. Perhaps your heart seeks rest after a very long day or a troubling time in your life and you desire to be able to have that rest inside of your home. But the issue is that there's some other people who live in your home, your spouse and your children who don't know about your wish for rest, and so you become frustrated with them. You long for something out of the pleasures of your heart. Your pleasures begin to go at war inside of you, and then you attack and you quarrel and you lash out and you fight your spouse and children for not giving you what you want. And so let me just ask, did the war with your family bring about the rest you originally desired? You took matters into your own hands. Did it work? You went down the path to provide for yourself and to harm others when you couldn't obtain, but it didn't satisfy, did it? In fact, it probably made you feel worse off than before. And this is true in countless areas of our life over and over and over again. Well, friend, I would just say, did you know that our sinful nature is always seeking ways to provide for itself? To satisfy itself. Anything to remove God from the equation and to become our own suppliers in our lives. But it never satisfies. Our hearts are never full. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ or you're not sure if you're a believer in Christ, I must ask you to consider why your life is constantly filled with desires and longings that are never ultimately satisfied. And why people, including yourself, seek to provide for themselves by hurting and using others around them in order to selfishly gain what it is that their heart wants. And even when they go and do that, and perhaps they even obtain something material in the end of it, why is it that it still doesn't satisfy the lust and the envy that you have? Why is it that we still want more and more? Why is it that our hearts are often so discontent? And why are you so set on going your own way to be your own provider? You see, at the heart of being a Christian is being someone who humbles themselves and falls down before the cross of Christ. 
It's becoming a person who knows their sin and their needs and that they must have God provide for them or else they will never be satisfied. And so they stop trusting in themselves and their things in order to bring them happiness and they seek to find all of their happiness in God. And they know that the only way to God is not by force and by might and by stepping over top of people and just being a good person. They know that the way to God is by faith and trust in Jesus who died for them in their place. And so consider, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, why is it that your heart is so bent on lusting and envying and seeking to provide for itself? Could it be that your heart is opposed to God and that it's unwilling to submit to Him and His help? But you see, my friend, that your longings are still there. Those desires are still there. They're teaching you that you're made to long for something. You were created to be satisfied by someone. And that someone is God himself. And so the charge is to turn from this self-dependence. And depend upon the only one who can satisfy your soul. Don't let another minute go by without casting your soul upon God for grace and mercy. And you'll surely find Jesus to be a sweet and a tender Savior. And so the first thing that we see is that the way of selfish non-prayer never satisfies. It doesn't work. But the second thing that I want to show you about the way of no prayer is this. It trusts in self over God. We've already seen that it never satisfies in an ultimate sense. It leaves us still needing something. But even for the seasoned Christian, there's something to be considered here. There's more to see than just the emptiness in the way of no prayer. There's also a type of exalting ourselves and our abilities to provide for ourselves over and above God. So notice what the person does do and what the person doesn't do in verse 2. And behind this, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a person who truly trusts in God or whether or not a person truly doesn't. Behind all this, we'll see who it is that the person truly trusts and who the person doesn't trust. So here's verse two. You lust and do not have. So you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have. Because you do not ask. So verse 2 is clear. We do not have because we do not ask. We don't ask. But that doesn't mean we do nothing to try and get it. Verse 2 pictures a person who doesn't do one thing but does do another thing. What they don't do is this. They don't ask of God. Meaning they don't pray. But they do commit murder and fight and quarrel when they don't have something that they want. In other words, they take matters into their own hands. So when you need something, friend, there's two options on the plate. Take matters into your own hands or put things into the hands of God. And this is ultimately a question of who you trust more. You see, the way of non-prayer trusts in self over God. And I wonder how this might show in your lives. Because maybe there's some of you here who hardly ever pray at all. Perhaps you know that prayer is a good thing. 
and that it would be important to do, but you never do it. And so days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and come to find out you've prayed no more than before meals and in a church service. And honestly, one of the easiest excuses to give is, well, I just forget or I'm tired or the days pass by and it never really occurs to me to pray or I'm simply forgetful. And this is quite the way to frame it. Because on one hand, it's a true admission that you might respect the idea of prayer. You're not saying that it's not important, at least with your words. What you're admitting, though, is that you just don't think to do it. It doesn't cross your mind. But this this is also an interesting way to frame it because in reality, this excuse is an admission of a deeper problem in our hearts. What it actually reveals is that we go days on end without recognizing our need for God's help. If we lived with a never-ending sense of our helplessness and our total dependence on God, we would pray. Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread. Daily bread, meaning we should depend on him in prayer for the things that we often just take for granted, that we think our job secured for us. We need God to provide for our daily bread. But do our prayers actually show that we believe this? And so you see that forgetful prayerfulness, I'm sorry, you see that forgetful prayerlessness is a way of trusting self more than trusting God. It's living by your own strength and power instead of God's strength and power. And then there's the person who finds prayer to be a waste of time. And this is probably very prevalent in such an efficient culture. And of course, you never say that. You never just say it's a waste of time, but you live like it's true. I mean, why should you spend hours in prayer when you could use that time to go and accomplish what you'd pray for anyways? But the Bible gives us a different way to approach things. The Bible tells us about Nehemiah, who sat down and wept and mourned and fasted and prayed to God for days before he approached the king and began work on restoring the walls of Jerusalem. Some of us would be like, just, just get into construction clothes and go to work. Why sit and weep and pray and fast for days before doing this? The Bible also gives us the Esthers of the world who prayed and fasted three days before going to speak to the king. And let's not forget our Savior Jesus, who after a very busy day, he'd wake up before the sun and he would go to a desolate place all by himself and pray to the Father. I had a professor, Jim Shaddix, and he would always say this, that Jesus, the busiest man alive, set aside time and prayer that didn't have a period on it. Church history also gives us the totally absurd sounding logic of the reformer Martin Luther. Here's what this very busy man, very busy man said about prayer. I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to be able to get it all done. Now that kind of logic might sound totally ridiculous to some of you. So much to do today that you have to spend three hours in prayer to get it done, Martin Luther. Why not just go and spend three hours getting it done? And so you see there's two kinds of people in the world. People who have so much to do that they have no time for prayer. And people who have so much to do that they have all the time in the world for prayer. 
This is the difference between those who trust in themselves to accomplish all of their work and those who trust in God for the strength and wisdom to do it. And so I must ask you, what's most important? Getting more done by your own power and looking impressive in the eyes of the world or praying in all you do so that God might look impressive? And let me just say that while our prayer may seem counterproductive, God does tell us you do not have because you do not ask. So perhaps prayer would be the means to receiving innumerable blessings that you could never imagine receiving by simply relying on yourself. I mean, Solomon prayed for wisdom and then had much more of that added to him. Jesus told us to seek righteousness first and then all of these things will be added to you. So don't drink the lie that you by your own power can please God in your work and outperform him and outperform him in what you accomplish. And lastly, maybe some of you pray when the going gets tough. Perhaps you pray when it's crunch time and it's absolutely clear that God must come through now. That you remain prayerless until it's absolutely necessary. But my dear friend, prayer was always absolutely necessary. You just didn't realize it. You thought you had it. You thought you could make it on your own. And I know that because you would have prayed if you didn't. And once it got really bad, then you prayed. But friends, we don't only need God once it gets really bad. You need him all the time. Every day, every minute, every breath. It's all by his hand. And perhaps you would have had the answer to your urgent request today. You would have had that answer months ago if you would have asked then. But you didn't. And now you are where you are. And perhaps that's because God intends to teach you that the way of no prayer is the way of trusting yourself instead of God. And now you must learn the harder way to trust him instead of self. Well, thanks be to God that he gives a greater grace. And that even when his children delay in prayer by their own self-trust, he is still graciously willing to answer their prayers now, even though they're far overdue. James 1.5 says that God gives generously and without reproach. Without reproach. That means that even your tardiness in prayer will be met by a kind and gracious Father. Not a God who says, what took you so long? And so it's better late than never. He accepts the assignment of prayer, though it's past the deadline. And he still gives full credit in all of his grace and in all of his mercy. So remember, as a child of God, through faith in Christ Jesus, you have now been given a spirit of adoption in which your heart can cry out, Abba, Father. So don't delay anymore. Instead, come to your Father now. And so we've seen the second thing about the way of no prayer. It's the way of trusting self instead of God. But there's one more thing to see about the way of no prayer. There's a type of prayer that really is no prayer at all. And it's this, asking God with wrong motives. The way of no prayer might look like prayer in its form on the surface, but it's not because you ask with wrong motives. Look at verse three. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. 
Now, I get the sense when I read this that James is a step ahead of his readers here in the letter. He knows that someone might step up and say, you claim, James, that I don't have because I don't ask. Well, I do pray. I pray fairly regularly, and I still don't have what I'm asking for. So what say you, James? And James has an answer. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your pleasures. Now, what's going on here? What are the pleasures that James has in mind? And what is, what is so horrible about this act of asking with wrong motives? Well, if we look at the very next verse, we see something striking in James chapter 4. James paints this picture of the one asking God out of wrong motives, and he calls them adulteresses. Look at verse 4. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So somehow, the one who prays with wrong motives is a friend of the world. They're seeking to gain something from God in order to spend it on their worldly pleasures. And so they're praying to God as though they're a friend of God, but they're actually praying to God to spend it on their sinful desires. So they're friends of the world. And they aren't truly friends of God in that sense then, are they? They're adulteresses. What they're doing is that they're attempting to use God to gain something sinful in the world. They act the part and form, but they have ulterior motives like the Israelites who want to follow God when it means coming out of the exodus, but then want to worship a graven image. They're what James calls in this letter double-minded people. A foot in the kingdom of God and a foot in the kingdom of the world. And this theme of double-minded adultery, spiritual adultery, is a constant theme throughout James. I'll show you because it helps us to understand what praying with wrong motives really means. Back in chapter 1 and in verse 8, James encourages us to pray for wisdom with faith so that we would not be double-minded people, unstable in all our ways. That's the language. Pray with wisdom, pray with faith, so you wouldn't be tossed to and fro, so you wouldn't be double-minded people, unstable in all your ways. And this issue of double-mindedness is addressed all throughout this letter. So there's those in chapter 1 who trust that God can be tempted. Uh, I'm sorry. There's people in chapter 1 who trust that God cannot be tempted with evil, that every good gift comes from Him, and that there is no variation or shifting shadow with Him, meaning God doesn't change. Yet they're double-minded and blaming God for their temptation to sin. And at the end of chapter 1, James has to address the readers to tell them to receive the word by being doers, not simply hearers. Don't just hear it, but hear it and then go and do. And then he has to tell them, don't consider yourself religious if you can't bridle the tongue. And in chapter 2, he addresses those who say they believe in an impartial God while they're being impartial towards others. They're accepting the rich and they're ignoring the poor. And then he addresses in the same chapter the issue of those who say that they have faith. He tells them that simply saying so is worthless unless, unless your life proves it. You might say that God is one, meaning you might have good theology and good doctrine, but even the demons believe this. And so you need to show your faith by your works or it's not real. 
If you had true saving faith, it would show. And then we turn to chapter 3, and the same issue of double-mindedness is at hand. There are certain people who want to become teachers in the church, but they shouldn't be because the tongue is very powerful. And they use the tongue to bless God and to curse people. They're double-minded. And so then James asks them, who's wise among you? Who is understanding? And you almost get the picture that a few people might stand up and raise their hands and say, I'm the wise one. I'm the understanding one. And James then goes and points out that while some might claim to be wise, their wisdom is really not from above. If it's full of selfish ambition and full of jealousy, and if it brings about disorder and chaos and evil things. So he has to tell them that the wisdom from above, he says this word, the wisdom from above is without hypocrisy. Meaning it's not double-minded if it were true wisdom. So all throughout, we're dealing with this spiritual adultery. And this is the pleasure spoken of in our text today. There's apparently a group of people in this church that want power and prestige and recognition. And they want to use God and their so-called faith in God in order to accomplish it. And so they claim faith in God, but they're only hearers of the word. They're not doers. They claim to worship an impartial God, but then they show personal favoritism towards the rich. They claim to have faith and sound doctrine, but their life doesn't back it up. They want to be teachers, but their tongues are not bridled. They praise God with their lips, but then they turn and use those lips to curse people and to tear them down. And they claim to be wise and understanding, but it's full of selfish ambition and destruction. And so it goes for our text today. In our text today, apparently there's some people who might claim to pray. They say that they ask. And I'm sure that they pray in public and at the dinner table and in the assembly of the church. But it's just another one of their gimmicks. They probably pray for something really good too. God, give me wisdom. God, help me to teach. God, I want to be a leader in this church but God knows their friendship with the world and he sees their adultery and their wicked motives their prayer for wisdom is really nothing more than a stunt to receive recognition for being smart everyone will come to me and ask me what the answer is their prayer to teach and to lead is nothing more than a desire for power and selfish gain their prayer has nothing of the fear of God in it nothing of faith Nothing of desiring the good of the church and the glory of the Lord. And where the Lord Jesus tells us to pray for God's name to be hallowed, these people pray for their own name to be hallowed. Do you see the problem? It's no prayer at all. It's no prayer at all to pray with wrong motives. So the way of no prayer is the way of asking with wrong motives to spend it on our selfish desires. So did you know that you could ask for a good thing for the wrong reasons? Imagine, if you will, a teenager who comes and asks their mom and dad for money. And the parents obviously ask some good questions. What are you going to use it for? Well, me and my friends, we're going to go out and grab a bite to eat. At least that's, that's the story that he gives. But he knows that he intends to spend the money in a way that his parents would never approve if they knew about it. But the parents don't know about it, and so what they do is they give him the money anyways. This is not the case with God. 
God knows our motives. He knows what we're really asking for when we ask. He knows when we intend to use it, how we intend to use it, and how we will actually use it if we were to have it. He's not like a finite father who thinks that his son is grabbing dinner with his friends. He's an all-knowing father who knows what's really going on in our hearts. Now, just assume with me, if we draw the illustration out a little bit more, assume that this earthly father of the teenager caught wind of what his son was going to do with the money. Perhaps he'd stumbled across his cell phone and read some of his son's text messages beforehand and saw what he and his friends were up to. Would it be loving then for the father to grant his son's request if he knew that he would spend it in such a way that it would bring about his destruction? And would it be good for our father in heaven to grant us our requests when he knows our true motives and that they're evil? No. It's better that he denies our requests and that he has us open up the book of James and then learn this lesson. It's for his glory and for the good of our souls that he denies it. God has already given us so many things in creation that sinful, that, that sinful people worship above him. He's not bound to give us any more. And so let us humble ourselves and pray real prayers. The path of no prayer is praying a prayer that is really no prayer at all. It's asking God with wrong motives. Now, that's all for the path of no prayer. It never satisfies. It trusts in self instead of God, and it asks with wrong motives. And admittedly, this has taken up almost all of our time. So we only have a few brief moments to present what this text teaches us by implication. Because by implication, if we reverse the text, the text gives us the path of true prayer. There's another way to live besides trusting in self and being double-minded and hypocritical prayerlessness. There's the path of no prayer, and there's also the path of true prayer, and it's simply this. Pray with right motives. Pray rightly. Because there are two reasons why you may not have something from God that you could have, that He'd be happy to give you. First, the reason could be that you don't pray. James says you do not have because you do not ask. And second, the reason could be because you pray with wrong motives. He says you ask and still do not have because you ask with wrong motives. And so then the path of true prayer is twofold. Pray and then pray with God-honoring motives. Pray and pray rightly. In other words, don't be self-trusting. Depend upon God for what you really need by actually praying. And then honor God with your prayers. So begin, don't be self-trusting once again, but actually honor God in the fact that you pray, actually pray. Honor Him with prayers instead of sinful and self-dependent strivings. And then as you pray, honor Him with your prayers by their content so that they have God's glory and the good of the church at heart. I think about Joshua who interceded for Israel. And he did a couple of things when he prayed for Israel in the book of Joshua. First of all, he prayed. That's the first step. He didn't simply suit up for battle when things were looking bad. 
He prayed. And then he prayed for the good of Israel. So he had the good of God's people in heart and mind. But ultimately, he prayed for God to make a name for himself. So this is his prayer in Joshua chapter 7, verse 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for us. In Joshua 7, verse 9, here's his prayer. God, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So do you see the focus? How Joshua appeals to God's great name in his prayer? Joshua's prayer was not ultimately about him gaining military power. It was about God preserving the might of his name. As we've seen already, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So friends, when you pray, pray biblical, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying, church-building prayers. As the psalmist tells us, God blesses us that we might be a blessing to the end of the earth. We aren't just blessed so we can have more stuff for us. We're blessed so we can be a blessing for his people and for his glory throughout the earth. And so pray and pray rightly. Actually pray. Don't just trust in yourself. Trust God. And then whatever you pray for, may it be so that God would be seen as great, that you may grow in your faith and your love for Him, and that His people may be encouraged and His kingdom would continue to grow. My prayer is that our prayers would be shaped in this way. That they would actually come out of our mouths. And that they would have the glory of God as they're in. Friends, praying for provision in our households should be done so so that God would be cherished and treasured as our provider. Praying for God's blessing. We should do that so that we would be better brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to grow in my faith, not so I can be looked at as important. I want to grow in my faith so I can help other brothers and sisters grow and become complete in Christ. That's a godly prayer. That's a prayer that gets answered. Praying that God would bless us so that we could be a greater financial blessing to the ministry of the church. And so that we could be devoted to the advancement of the gospel across the globe and caring for the poor. Praying for the prospering of our own church. That our church would grow and flourish. But so that God would be seen as supremely wise. Not so that we could outcompete other churches and feel like we're really something special. But so that God would be seen as supremely wise and powerful. My dear friends, there's a better way than quarreling and fighting and arguing and bickering and complaining. Praying. If we ask rightly from God, we will have.